author and speaker Josh Harris. Some of you may know that name, perhaps have heard him or read some of his books. Tells the following story. He says, I knew a girl who used to think that the stars were tiny specks of light just over her head. He says, I'm not kidding. And she wasn't in grade school when she believed this. She was in college. She was really a sweet, kind person and and really quite intelligent in many ways. But one day in a conversation, she mentioned that she had just learned that the stars in the night sky were actually really far away. I asked her what she meant. Well, she said, you know, they're not just right up there. They're not just tiny dots. They're really far away. I was incredulous. What did you think they were before, I asked? Well, I thought they were, you know, just right above us. He goes on to say, if you were to ask me why it matters that we study the scriptures and we study God, I'd say for the same reason that it's worth knowing that stars are not tiny pinpricks of light just above our heads. When we know the truth about God, it fills us with wonder. If we fail to understand his character, we'll never be amazed by him. We'll never feel small as we stare up at him. We'll never worship him as we ought. We continue in our study of Psalms this morning, and our text is Psalm 97. It is one of several psalms in a category that is sometimes referred to as enthronement psalms. And as you might expect, the enthronement psalms emphasize the rule of the king. But, but not just any king. They have as their focus, as, as, as their main subject, the king. And they take up the theme of the Messiah King that we saw referred to last week in Psalm 2, but they notch it up a bit. Enthronement Psalms celebrate the rule of God over all the earth. And I think it's really important for us because in the same way that we need to know that stars are not tiny little pinpricks of light just above our heads, we need to be reminded that God is not just any God. God is not just there. But in fact, God is awesome. God is immense. God fills his creation with his glorious presence and he requires a response from that creation. Marva Dawn tells a story about getting into a rather animated discussion in her high school English class as a freshman with her teacher over the word awful, A-W-F-U-L. She says, we should have looked at the dictionary. My old Webster's lists as its first definition, inspiring awe, highly impressive. Not until its fourth entry does it supply the definition usually assumed in idiomatic English. That is very bad, ugly, unpleasant. But the teacher had the final word that day in class. Even at age 14, I felt that a vital perception was being lost. That sense of something, someone was higher than we are. I longed to verbalize awe 
fullness. My teacher simply made the class awful. Today, people apply the word awesome, related word, to things like clothes and food and music, cinematic effects. The word is so overused that when people sing Rich Mullins' song, Our God is an Awesome God, they can easily trivialize the awful one and put the Trinity on the same level as toothpaste and music. As our culture has worked hard to establish equality among persons, we've somehow put God into that parody and gradually reduced our sense that this is a breathtakingly transcendent God we are talking about. I wish I could just somehow get my head around that. But she's right. She's right. We really don't know the immensity of God. The the enormity of God. The the hugeness of God. And I think that that's true. Or at least measured and we'll see in part by our response. So there's probably no better reason for studying the enthronement psalms. Lots of reasons, but I think the great one is that they they always present us with a huge, huge God. They're powerful reminders who our God is, the nature, the scope of his power, his rule, and the necessary, that's a key word, necessary response of the people who inhabit the earth especially those who are his people. So let's stand and read together, shall we? Psalm 97. Don't forget, we've said the Psalms were were written to be used in worship by the Israelites. The book of Psalms was was probably their worship book. Uh, they, uh, They didn't all read, that's for sure. They had a lot of scripture memorized. So if you just want to close your eyes and say this from memory, uh, feel free this morning. Here we go. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him. All you gods. Zion hears and rejoices And the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. For he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous And joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. My brothers, my sisters, 
This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. This morning, I want us to be reminded of some of the truths that we know about God and our worship of him as the king of the universe. And because the enthronement psalms are are about God's rule, about his his reign on the earth and the response of the earth to worship him in return. I think there's great value for us to to hear some of the specific statements that are made about God and his rule and then to ask some questions um, about our life with him as it pertains to those true statements there. There are just uh, there are so many here. To be quite truthful, as I was working through this psalm this week, I thought I really got myself in deeper than I have time for. So just know ahead of time that we're not doing every phrase, every word justice in this psalm, nor of any of the psalms that we will study together. But two or three truths that I think just sort of jump off the page for us that I want us to to think about and to wrestle with for just a little bit. Does that sound okay to you? All right, good. I I don't know what we'd do if it wasn't okay with you, so I'm really glad that it is. Let's start with a neighbor question, shall we? All right, verse 1. We just heard these words. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Turn to someone near you and ask that person why the reign of God over the earth is a reason for gladness and rejoicing. Okay? That's what the psalmist says to do. Rejoice and be glad. God reigns. Why is that a reason for gladness? Go ahead. Ask someone nearby. See what they think. Okay, you ready? What's your neighbor think? Why is God's reign over the earth? Thanks, Rick. You've got the mic. Why is the reign of God over his earth reason for gladness and rejoicing? Who wants to be the brave person that speaks first? There's a brave soul. Bunny. Okay. He is a source of safety, security, happiness. All right. Everything. Okay. So why wouldn't we be happy to have him in our lives? It's a great question. Why wouldn't we be happy? Why aren't we happier? Thank you, Bunny. I like that. What else? Donna. Well, Karen said it's because he's the most capable and able to do it so we can trust him. Excellent. He is the most capable. Plus, he's good and loving. 
Karen wanted to add. <laughs> All right. What else? Um, in Revelations, it speaks of how when he created the earth, he created the universe and the stars, how they praise and worship him every morning. Hmm. And for all eternity, they, all eternity, they say, holy is the Lord Almighty. And, uh, and then they sing to the God who created them. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I read this, I think God created his being. He created the earth and the earth gives him thanks every single morning okay. for creating Okay. Okay. So gladness and rejoicing, thanksgiving is a response to the one who has made it. Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. I like that. Thank you. What else? Anyone else? Lee? God is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. Okay. He is just. It says, in fact, justice and righteousness are the foundations exactly. of his throne. Exactly. And so his kingdom is perfect. Okay. And that's a cause for rejoicing. Perfect God runs a perfect kingdom. Yes. Kathy, want to add? <clears throat> what I thought was that we could be at peace. That, you know, that somebody was in charge and that there isn't going to be chaos. Okay. You know, that we can rest in, in him. Good. Good. Excellent. Excellent. And Monica added, and what a relief that it's not me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We need to look in the mirror every morning and say, there is a God and you're not it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's there's a theme that runs consistently throughout the Psalms. Good responses, good interaction theme that runs consistently through the Psalms and certainly through through all the scripture, both Old and New Testament. It is this life is not Random. It does not just happen. But in fact, there is a God. There is a God who is the creator and the sustainer of all of life. That Puritan prayer picked up that statement from Paul in Acts 17. In him we live and we move and we have our being. There is a creator. There's a God who's a creator, sustainer of all of life and its events. And as such, he is worthy of our attention. The psalmist, as we expect, uses the name Yahweh here, his point in a culture where he is surrounded by gods, by images, by images made to be worshipped, carved out of wood, chiseled out of stone. In a culture where there were many, many visible images, the psalmist has one God in mind, not just any God reigns. The God reigns. Yahweh is in complete and perfect control. That is a cause for gladness and rejoicing. For sure. As as Kathy suggested, at least someone is in charge. You know, we're tempted, I think, sometimes to look around. Is anybody in charge here? You know, this is a mess. There is a lot of of stuff that goes on here that just is less than perfect. It's good news that someone is in charge, that someone is not surprised by the state of things that we find ourselves in. And that means, yes, that there is hope. There is hope that, that something can be and something will be done to improve 
the situation, which I think leads to the really significant truth that's expressed in verse 2. And Lee referred to this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You know, if you, if you look into archaeology and you study some of the things that they have found regarding thrones in the ancient world, the throne was always was, was built up, was physically built up so that, so that people would come into the throne room if they were allowed into the throne room at all, and their eyes were focused up to the one on the throne. And so, so what the throne was, was built on was for the purpose of putting it up so that people looked up to the king. Our king, Yahweh's throne is established on righteousness and justice. The very principles that his kingdom lives on and runs by are righteousness and justice. Not only is Yahweh in charge, but his economy and the values of his kingdom Established by the principles of righteousness and justice. Isn't that amazing? This is a truth that I think we dare not forget, brothers and sisters, and it is easy to. We dare not forget as we live in this fallen world of ours. Our God is all about righteousness and justice. And we must cling to that truth even when we look around and everything that we see gives evidence to the contrary. This particular psalm doesn't speak to it, but there are a number of psalms that do. The the messianic theme, the kingdom that will come, the coming kingdom of God's anointed one, the coming kingdom of Yahweh when righteousness and justice will be the order of the day for all those who live in that kingdom. Remember our study of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It is a prayer for the values of the kingdom of God to happen on this earth. And as we said when we studied it together, it begins in our lives as people who are committed to the principles of righteousness and justice in our world. It's a longing of the worshiper of Yahweh for his kingdom to be seen in all of its beauty by the inhabitants of this world. Let's not forget the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne even when it doesn't look like it. That is the God who we serve, who is in control. There's another truth about God and our life with him that I think is embedded in this psalm. The psalmist says, beginning with chapter, verse 2, excuse me, that clouds and thick darkness surround him. goes on to say that fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see 
his glory. Let's stop and just remember for just a couple of minutes together a little bit of, of history, significant history in the life of the Israelite people, the people for whom this book was their book of worship. Book of Exodus records for us, you remember, God's miraculous deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. So they leave Egypt and they head into the Sinai Desert where they make a stop at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, you remember what happened at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses was called by God to go up on the mountain. God sets up the rules for how he is going to communicate with this people that he has just delivered and is going to mold and shape for himself. He's going to communicate with Moses. Moses goes down to tell the people that they need to prepare to meet with God at the base of the mountain. And as the people are standing there, what do they see and what do they hear? Listen to what Exodus 19 says. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. If you turn over to the next chapter, chapter 20, there's a description that includes thunder and lightning and the people trembled in fear. And they said to Moses, you go, we'll just stay right here at a comfortable distance and see what happens. I don't know for sure what the psalmist had in mind. When he created these images of fire going before him, lightning lighting up the world, the earth seeing it and trembling, the mountains melting like wax. But I'm a little suspicious that that he may have had the images of Sinai in mind. The first glimpse that these people had of who this God really is. So, so what is here for us? Can I say it this way? A reminder of the power and the awesomeness and the holiness of our God. Power, awesomeness, holiness of our God. It's interesting that when we turn to the New Testament, we look in Hebrews Chapter 12 in particular, it's, it's a book that is committed to, to teaching those who came out of the Jewish background that the system of law and sacrifice is no longer the system under which they live. Jesus has come. Jesus has become the final and perfect sacrifice. He has become the great high priest. And so the challenge of the writer of Hebrews is for the people to move out of this mindset or this paradigm that says, I have to do certain things in order to gain God's favor to a mindset that says, I have to embrace what God has done for me and Jesus in order to gain God's favor. And so he sets that up in the in in chapter 12 and talks about how they no longer have come before a mountain that is trembling with and, and smoking with fire and thunder and lightning and all that. But they have they have come into a new relationship. It's a relationship through Jesus, one of safety and security and certainty. But then he says, therefore. 
since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, our certainty of salvation in Christ Jesus cannot be shaken, cannot be lost. He says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And then he says this, for our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. My brothers and my sisters, what is your response? What is my response to the idea, to the image that God is a consuming fire? You know, we understand. Most of us understand pretty clearly that that salvation through Jesus, who has paid the price, who has met the requirements for God's standard of righteousness and holiness, he's put away the efforts of the law. Most of us understand that. We understand that. And we say, Yahoo, that is great news. And now I am free to live life as I want to. Is that a problem? Okay, that's bad theology. We know that we're not free to live life as we want to. We're now free to live life for which we were created in worship of God. Let me ask you this. Don't answer this. When is the last time that you got on your face, literally on your face, on the floor, somewhere when you were by yourself, prostrate before your God. Come to think of it, when is the last time I did that? If Psalm 97 reminds us of an important truth, it is the truth that our God is an awesome God. That our God, as safe and secure as we find ourselves as New Testament, New Covenant believers, the safety that he provides, our God is still a consuming fire. And I dare say that he is worthy of times when we just fall on our faces before him and go, whoa. I think that is sadly and sorely missing in the church today. The church at large, the church being that organism that we are a part of. You remember the story, C.S. Lewis, Narnia Chronicles, I love this. Little Lucy hears about Aslan, you remember in the, in the Chronicles, he's the, uh, he's the lion, he's the Christ figure. And Lucy, who has met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, characters in the story, she says, well, is, is, he, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, and he is the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Whoa, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, what does our worship And I mean the way that we live our lives, that broad definition of worship that we've established and and referred to in Psalm chapter 1. What does our worship 
living our lives as God's people communicate to the watching world about the nature of our God. Is he casual and easygoing? Or is he a consuming fire before which we ought to bow in worship and adoration? You know, I remember years ago, this guy that, uh, that my family knew, he had, a, uh, he had a dog that was part wolf. And it looked all wolf. This dog was, he was big and, and, and you'd stand in the same room with this, this dog and, and he'd just look at you. He wouldn't wag his tail. He wouldn't bat an eye. He'd just look you over. And, and, you know, this friend could stand there and assure you all he wanted that he's friendly. He won't hurt you. And you stand there and you think, he's friendly and he won't hurt me. But he looks like he could eat me. If there is a continuum in the life of God's people today, and on one extreme is that that fear of God who is consuming fire, and on the other side there is that Jesus is my best buddy, as the t-shirt that my wife detests say, Jesus is my homeboy. The pendulum has swung the homeboy. And I think as the people of God, we need to work to bring that pendulum back to where it belongs. And that is swinging somewhere between those extremes and living with the tension of, yes, I have been set free in Christ Jesus to worship God in, in love and in intimacy. And so I better do it. I better worship him in love and in intimacy and in awe and respect of who he is. Praise team, you need to come up. We've got to finish. Oh, there's so much more here. Um, let me just give you one last thought as the praise team comes. And, uh, and it relates to those verses. Read these more closely as you get home today. Verses 7 through 10, where the, uh, the psalmist talks about all who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols Worship him, all you gods and, and all you people. Zion hears and rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high. And over all the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. Can I see this as just one last quick point? Our measure of understanding and appreciation of the hugeness of God and the mystery of our God is determined, I think, at least in part, by what we give ourselves to. The psalmist contrasts the actions of those who do not know God, worshipers of idols and images, with those who know God. They are the ones that love God and hate evil. And there is nothing, dare I say, there is nothing more evil than that we worship something else or someone else besides the one who is deserving of our worship. And it can be so subtle. But your assignment this week, if you'll take it, think on it, pray about it, is to find some place to get quiet and to open yourself up in honesty and vulnerability in an intimate time with God and to inquire and to say, God, what is there in my life that my heart longs for more than you? 
Where am I an idol worshiper? Because I want to be in a place in my life where my understanding of you is evidenced by what my heart worships and 